text from this afternoon comes from the scripture reading from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 9 through 15. Under the heading, The God-Given Task, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon I would like to give some attention to a passage taken from the book Ecclesiastes. As regards this book of the Bible, a superficial reading of it may cause us to wonder what comfort it has to offer. Often the general feeling is that the author of this book has a very pessimistic outlook on life. The message seems to be that everything man does is in vain. No lasting effect whatsoever. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Yes, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Looking at the net profit, it indeed seems all in vain. Vanity of vanities. Because of this refrain, which comes up repeatedly through, throughout the book Ecclesiastes, many find it difficult to understand what significance this book has within God's revelation as whole. What does the preacher want to teach us? To start answering this question, it should be noted that the Lord has also given this book a place in Scripture to give us guidance on the pathways of salvation. One might say this might be true, but what is that guidance which this specific book has to offer? Briefly, beloved, the answer is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes wants to point us to the providence of God. In more practical terms, this book will give us guidance so that we may see God's hand in all that we experience in this often so broken life. Yes, beloved, how broken this life is at times. The preacher speaks about it in detail. He surely does not cover it up. On the contrary, on the contrary when reading this book of the Bible, at times one wonders what joy is left in life. If anything, it is only short-lived. Since the fall in into sin in paradise, man works and lives in the sweat of his face. The earth brings forth thorns and thistles. Of course, one cannot deny that there is also happy moments at times, yet generally life is full of disappointments. Often sorrow and grief and hardship overshadow the happiness. The burdens we have to carry sometimes become so heavy that it takes away all the joy that is left. Depression sets in and as a result, life becomes very gloomy. What is the meaning of life? What do we even live for? 
Moreover, even in the event that someone belongs to those who live on the greener side of the fence, healthy and well off, still sooner or later the day comes that death breaks, breaks life down. And at that moment, you can't take anything with you of the riches that you have enjoyed on this side of the grave. Today you are healthy, but tomorrow you might be confronted with a terrible disease, ruining your body, or an accident in which one of your loved ones is killed. With events such as these, we are once again confronted with the fact of how soon life can come to a sudden end. At such a moment, the question may come up, what is the meaning of all this? What is the direction? Beloved, one will start to see this meaning only when directing his eyes on high to God about whom we read in the text chosen for this afternoon's sermon. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I realize a sentence like this does not in a simple way answer all the questions we may struggle with when confronted with difficulties, hardships, or death. Nevertheless, it points us to God's hand, and there lies our comfort in this often so broken life. That's the gospel I may preach to you this afternoon. The comfort we receive when we live, when we see life ruled by God's hand. First, we will see God who in Christ has redeemed our life from all vanity, and secondly, so that our life may bear fruit for him. God who in Christ has redeemed our life from all vanity so that it may bear fruit for him. In the first chapter of the book Ecclesiastes, of the book Ecclesiastes life is portrayed as seemingly to be no more than just one tiring, vicious circle. Someone builds something up, yet another breaks it down. So when a third one comes around, he has to start all over again. Isn't that often what life is all about? Think about the international scene, for instance. Warring factions strike a peace deal, but only a little thing has to happen and everything is back to square one. I only have to refer here to the conflict in the Middle East. Over the years, how often have we not seen a picture of an American president shaking hands with a Palestinian leader and an Israeli prime minister? At such a moment, it is said, this is a real breakthrough. A real breakthrough in this conflict which has gone on now for so many decades. Time and again, hopes were high. But look at it today. Has there really been any progress over the years? So it's not all that difficult to sympathize with the question of the preacher. What is the net profit of it all? Isn't it all in vain? All our toil and labor, does it ever produce anything permanent? After all the sweat and struggling, isn't the result often very minimal? See there, beloved, the question addressed by the preacher. What gain has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Isn't it all vanity? Generations come and go, the sun rises and goes down, the wind turns from the north to the south and back again, as it always has. Man goes out to his work, but he's never finished. When there is something new, it shines for a moment, but after a while it becomes old again, dies away and is forgotten. Isn't that what life is all about? In the end, all un aren't all our efforts fruitless? Yes, what la lasting value does life under the sun have? For a while, one may enjoy life, but then death brings everything to an end again. It indeed seems all very pessimistic. At first reading, the preacher indeed, at first reading, the preacher indeed seems to have a very negative outlook on life. Yet when continuing reading this book of the Bible, we learn that the preacher not only wants to 
go by experience, but to come to an answer to the questions he struggles with. He also wants to listen to God's divine revelation. And in this context, it should be noted that the preacher living as a child of God in the time of the Old Testament had not yet received the clear insight as we as the church of the New Testament have it. He did not yet know about Christ, who by his sacrifice on the cross redeemed a creation, groaning in travail from its bondage of decay, as the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans. The preacher had not yet the clear insight. Nevertheless, as a covenant child, he knew that this redemption would come and that therefore life was not in vain. In addition, he also knew about God's providence, which brings us to the text chosen for this afternoon's sermon. In this passage, the preacher gives an answer to that question. He also started his book with, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer to this question is given in chapter three, verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And so we may add in the light of what follows, it was not in vain. It was not in vain since verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. In more practical terms, the preacher is saying here that oftentimes we look at things only from the outside, not looking any further than what we can see with our physical eye. When doing so, it indeed seems that many things in this life come to an untimely end. And so what was the purpose of it? Yet as God's children, we should look further, opening also the eye of faith, recognizing that all those passing moments of laughter and sorrow, of building and breaking down, are all necessary links of God's plan of salvation. Within that plan of God, every human activity has its appropriate time, says the preacher. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what was planted, a time for war and a time for peace. God indeed made everything beautiful in its time. Even more precisely, there is a system in all of this. In faith, I may may believe that throughout all the happy and sad events happening both in this world as well as in my personal life, Throughout all these events, God is working out his divine program. No, then we cannot always understand the way in which God does this. At times we may cry out, why, O Lord? We may struggle with difficulties, hardship, sorrow, and grief. Yet also of these things, the preacher says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, he acknowledges God's hand, not only in health, but also in sickness and in death. God's hand in rain and drought, fruitful and barren years. It's all all in the hands of our almighty God and Father. He apportions all these things to us, to us and to this world in the most excellent manner. Thus, despite the fact that at the first reading, the book Ecclesiastes may come across as having a a somewhat negative outlook on life, in fact, it will point us to God's hand in history it will open our eyes to the fact that indeed God has made everything beautiful in its time. That's also a calling, beloved, to open our eyes to this, since, as it says in the second part of verse 11, God has put eternity in man's heart. What does this mean? In answer to this question, an answer to this question is not all that simple. The word translated with eternity literally means the furthest in time. 
and can be used in a twofold way, either the furthest in time, far back in the past, or far forward in the future. And as far as our text is concerned, the best possible translation would be understanding with duration. The preacher is then saying here, God has put in man's heart the desire to gain knowledge about the beginning and the end of life and all the events in between. In other words, a desire to know about the meaning and the purpose of life, to discern the pattern of, of events. As such, there is nothing wrong with that desire. God himself gave it to man, put it in man's heart. Yet the preacher also says, in trying to discern the patterns of the events of life, one must also realize that in the end, no one can find out the work God does from beginning to end. Verse 11. In other words, there are also things we have to leave to God. There are also times that, so to speak, we have to put the hand on our mouth and stay silent, trusting that God is in control and has a purpose for everything. We cannot always answer all questions, why God does this or that. Then, at so many occasions in life, like the birth of a handicapped child, the loss of a job, or you name it, we indeed struggle to come to terms with it. Why, O oh Lord? Only God knows, and there do I leave it. God is in control, and there lies my comfort. In faith, I trust God's good and wise purpose. In Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, as church, we confess regarding the divine things of, regarding the divine doings of God, as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire further than our capacity allows but with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us. And we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who have only to learn the things which he, has, which he teaches us in his word, without transgressing these limits. The preacher, beloved, teaches exactly the same in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. This verse is a very central verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. It teaches us how to overcome that idea that at times everything seems to be in vain, not through experience, but through wisdom from above. The preacher has come to the insight that God does it, that what God does is eternal. He has all things, in his almighty hands, unchangeably fixed and messianically determined. Both throughout the events of history as well as through the events in our personal lives, God brings to fruition his plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. No, then we do not always understand why God does things in a certain way and at specific times. But in faith, we have the assurance that it all happens to God's plan, and this with the aim that men should fear before him that people fear before him. This too is one of the central themes of the book Ecclesiastes. It's also the conclusion with which the preacher closes the book off in chapter 12, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God. No, this does not mean that we are to be scared of God, afraid of him, but it means that we must trust him. It means as God's children, we find rest in the fact that God is in control. Then we don't ask curious questions beyond what we are allowed to ask. But when we leave things to whom they belong, trusting that God has indeed made everything beautiful in its time, 
Only in this way are we able to look beyond the vanity of this life, able to look further than the vicious, never-ending circle within. At times, there seems to be no progress at all. Also then, we start to enjoy life as a gift of God, even though things do not always go our way. For in faith, I believe that God is at work, fulfilling his plan also with my life. Then I no longer say it's all vanity, grasping for wind. But then I start numbering the days of my life in faith, realizing that in Christ, my life has been freed from all vanity. Then I know that despite all the sweating and struggling that is going on in life, nevertheless, it has a glorious perspective. Since from this broken world, I may direct my eyes on high to God in heaven, who once created all things good and perfect, and who, even after the fall into sin, did not leave this world to its fate, but kept sustaining all things in his almighty hands, still making everything beautiful in its time, and who finally will bring about a perfect redemption, which will last forever. Living in the midst of a world in which, a daily, which on a daily basis we are confronted with so many crooked things, it's this knowledge of faith that gives rest and security. Society is full of corruption, corruption at times even among leaders of our country. Sometimes this may cause one to think, if even our leaders are corrupt, why should I still be honest with my dealings with other people? Yet, beloved, God asks us to do, do right in the midst of a crooked generation. We are to fear God and should live joyfully in accordance with his commandments, accept life with all difficulties. It may involve as, it may accept life with all the difficulties it may involve as coming from God's fatherly hand. That calling runs as a golden thread throughout the book Ecclesiastes. Of course, living this way does not all of a sudden cause all questions we struggle with to disappear. The book Ecclesiastes itself is a clear testimony of a child of God who struggles in trying to understand God's hand in life. But at the same time, we see the author of this book holding on to his faith in God as regards the author of this book, because of the introduction, Son of David, King in Jerusalem, as well as the wisdom and wealth spoken about in this book, many say Solomon must be the author. Yet looking at the book as a whole, in particular the negative view of rulers suggested in it, it's more likely to think of a work written after Solomon's time, which then was presented as a legitimate voice of the wisdom tradition that had Solomon as its most famous exponent therefore going by his name. Reading the book, one may get the impression that the author was living in a time which David's royal dynasty had come to a decline, a time during, from which, a, from a human viewpoint, little could be seen of the fulfillment of God's mighty promises once given to Israel. And yet the author of this book holds on to the knowledge that God has made everything beautiful in its time. No, then the preacher could not fathom the problems of his time any better than the church today can fathom the problems of our time. Yet what he did is, is, in faith he submitted himself to the sovereign God, the shepherd of Israel, who deals wisely with his people, always. As I said before, as a child of God living in the time of the Old Testament, the preacher had yet no clear insight in how to overcome the vanity of life. This book of the Old Testament also calls for the coming of Christ, the Redeemer, 
who would free this creation, groaning in travail from, from its vanity. Well, we know that this Redeemer has come, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We may know that because of his accomplished work, life on earth is no longer an exercise in futility, but bears rich fruits when we live life in Christ. This brings me to the second point. The text chosen for this afternoon's sermon, brothers and sisters, encourages us to enjoy life. Verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In these two verses, we are indeed encouraged to enjoy life. Yet at times, one may wonder whether this is really possible especially in view of the fact that happiness, the happiness I enjoy today, tomorrow, it might be broken to bits. Often happiness is so short-lived. Nevertheless, the preacher says, enjoy the good. Of course, not like the people around us who live with the slogan, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, we rejoice knowing that all that we receive comes from God, and it is a gift from above. So we are indeed allowed to enjoy life. But one may ask, though at times there are indeed also good things to be enjoyed, nevertheless, it does not break that vicious cycle, joy today, sorrow tomorrow. So in the end, what do we actually gain with all our slaving and sweating? Sometimes we build something up, but later someone else comes and breaks it down again. Thick books can be written about the progress in technology and culture. But in the end, isn't it this all very relative? Doesn't the preacher himself also come to that conclusion? There is little new under the sun, verse 15. That which is already has been. Although there is progress in technology, and therefore we use machines where people a century ago may have used their hands, yet at the bottom of it, we are still busy with the same things. Adam received from God the cultural mandate and was busy working on the land. And today, people are still working on the land. And this will go on until Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, which begs the question, do we really come any further with all our slaving and sweating? Yes, we do. But again, we can only see this when working on the land, we look on high to God in heaven, about whom we read in the last line of verse 15, he seeks what is driven away. A better translation of these words is, he seeks of what is pursued. In other words, God, God has the past, the present, and the future in his almighty hands and controls history, makes progress in spite of what we may consider to be a need, needless repetition. Sometimes we may think, what did we achieve? Was it not all done in vain, especially when things fall to pieces? And yet, God made progress. Even though we can't see it, God moves ahead through all, throughout all the turmoil we see in this world. He moves ahead, even when peace deals like in the Middle East fall to pieces again. God moves ahead throughout all the corruption, crime, terrorism, you name it. He moves ahead also throughout the ups and downs of our personal life, fulfilling his plan of salvation. Then at times we may have difficulty in understanding the connection between the joyful days we may enjoy and the sad days when we are broken down by sorrow and grief. 
Yet according to our text, God gives them both, joy and sadness, beautifully in its time, to make progress also with your salvation, beloved. Summarizing, we are to look at things not from an earthly, but from a heavenly perspective. Yes, then in faith we may look at the history of salvation, of which we know so much more than the preacher did in his day. In the day of the preacher, there was but very little that pointed to the fulfillment of God's promises. Yet we know that even during those dark days of Israel's history, God worked towards the coming of the Messiah. Even though it did not look like it, God made progress. It became Christmas. Good Friday. Good Friday, again, such a strange day. Israel's king died on a cross. From a human point of view, it seemed that everything had been in vain. This was the one of whom many had expected so much. Good Friday, morning. Many had lost their hope in vain. But then it became Easter, which showed that Good Friday had not been in vain. Instead, the vicious circle of life and then death was finally broken. Conquering death, Christ redeemed life from its vanity. Therefore, all our slaving and sweating is no longer in vain. I may refer here to what the Apostle Paul, what the Apostle Paul has written in his first letter to the Corinthians. At the end of that wonderful chapter about the fruit of resurrection of Christ, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15:58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Not in vain in the Lord. What a wonderful message this is, beloved. All our toil, all that sweating every day again, as mother of the, in the family, as husband in the workforce, as student at school, it is not in vain when we serve the Lord in it. Not in vain. This seems to contradict the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And yet Paul says, not in vain. Is that not contradictory? No, it is not, since between the preacher and Paul stands Jesus Christ, who with the power of his resurrection has entered also your and my life, beloved. It is through him that all our labor is no longer in vain, but bears fruit everlastingly. Hold on to that, beloved. Hold on to that when tomorrow you start work again. As mother doing the washing or vacuuming, as father behind your desk in the office or in the factory or in the, at the work site, hold on to that also you, young people. When you start school again, hold on to the fact that all of these things of everyday life serve a purpose. The Lord uses them to come to his great day, to come to a new heaven and a new earth, where everything will be perfect again. One can indeed long for that day, but realize then, beloved, that everything in this life serves that purpose, is working together for the coming of that day. I realize this is the language of faith. Closing the eyes of faith, looking at things only with our physical eyes, at times one might indeed sigh. How can I go on? It's all so hard and often so meaningless. Yet in faith, I have the assurance it's not in vain. Not in vain even when things break down in my hands. It still will bear fruit when it is done in the Lord. And so this afternoon's sermon will encourage us to live by faith. For in faith I may know, even through sorrow, anguish and pain, my life bears glory. The glory of the victory of Christ. 
Beloved, Christ indeed shares his victory with us already today, having freed our life from its vanity, while I may also know we are counting down toward the complete victory. Every day in this life brings me closer to the final and perfect redemption in Christ. Therefore, beloved, and you too, young people, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And note while when the Apostle Paul speaks about the work of the Lord, this does not simply relate to church activities, but it relates to all that we do in everyday life, at home, at school, or at work, even in our leisure time. Yes, in all that we do. If we do it in and for the Lord, says Paul, and he says it inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is not in vain. To phrase this in different words, I may conclude this sermon as follows, assuring you that in Christ's life, no matter how hard life can be at times, in Christ's life is worth living, worth. For as a child of God, I live life for the Lord who also for me has made everything beautiful in its time. And therefore, praise be to him, to God, for what he has done in good pleasure, to me in wisdom may impart, is given me in perfect measure, beautiful in its time. Therefore, I will be content within my heart. Content, for in Christ my life, how troubled it may be at times, in Christ it has meaning meaning so that I am able to rejoice always, to rejoice even through the tears I cry, through the sleepless nights. It is not in vain, not in vain in the Lord. Amen.